was fearless. He was not afraid of anything or anybody. Under U.S. leadership, the European powers, the United Kingdom, France, and Germany had every intention of supporting the status quo of colonialism and apartheid in Zimbabwe and in South Africa. The Free South Africa movement was the last movement that combined grassroots with working with people inside the establishment, the Congress, and all those other people to get an agenda passed. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For this hour, our third and final show honoring the life of Randall Robinson, international human rights activist and a leader in the movement to bring down the brutal racist system of apartheid in South Africa. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Iverum. Well, this is the last of three shows honoring the life of human rights activist Randall Robinson. For this hour, we'll hear from Robinson's family and those who worked alongside him, including Representative Maxine Waters of California, speaking at the Washington, D.C. Memorial held in June of this year. And later in the show, our interview with Robinson's widow, Hazel Ross Robinson. But before we get to that, first, some headlines. There were celebrations throughout the African country of Gabon Wednesday, August 30th, after military leaders announced on television that they had placed President Ali Bonga Odimba under house arrest and had seized power. The Bongo family had ruled the former French colony since 1967, Ali Bongo is believed to be the wealthiest man in Gabon with an estimated $1 billion in assets. The coup took place just after he was declared the winner of a third term in an election that his opposition says was rigged. The Gabon takeover is the fifth coup in a West African country once under the direct thumb of French colonialism. In August 2020, Mali was taken over by military leaders. That coup was followed by military coups in Guinea in September 2021, Burkina Faso in September 2022, in Niger in July of this year, 2023, and in Gabon during the final days of August 2023. As we go to broadcast, the economic community of West African states known as ECOWAS and headed by Nigeria is still being pressured by France to intervene militarily in Niger to restore the deposed president to power. And here in D.C., a coalition of pan-African organizations are organizing the No War in Niger rally on Saturday, September 2nd, beginning at 10 a.m. in front of the French embassy in northwest D.C. On the ground spoke to Karaja Gashusha, an organizer with Africa Unite. Africans do not care whether this is done by military governments or civilian governments. And if the civilian governments want to be able to continue to lead without being ousted by military leadership, 
then what they're going to have to do is respond to the demands of their citizens and start pushing out the imperialists and start claiming the wealth of their own countries for the people in these countries. Again, that No War in Niger rally is Saturday, September 2nd, beginning at 10 a.m. in front of the French Embassy in Northwest D.C., 4101 Reservoir Road, Northwest. More of that interview is on our website, onthegroundshow.org. And finally, as the United States is cleaning up in the aftermath of Hurricane Idalia in Florida, we have an update on the horrific toll of missing persons after the wildfire that devastated Maui. Officials were able to verify that the number of missing persons is no longer more than 1,100 and that the number has been reduced to 388. And then 100 people on that list of 388 verified to officials that they are okay. So now, though there are still nearly 300 people missing, it is far lower than the more than 1,100 last reported. Officials said that more searches will be conducted in the water and in multi-story buildings. At least 115 people are confirmed to have died in the fire. And those are headlines. Stay with us. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Randall Robinson was a human rights activist and founder of the organization Trans Africa, best known for his tireless advocacy against the near genocidal system of South African apartheid and for democracy in Haiti. He was a mainstay of activist life in Washington, D.C. in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, leading sit-ins and rallies outside the South African embassy and holding a hunger strike to support asylum for Haitian refugees. Disgusted by U.S. racism, he left in 2001 to live in St. Kitts, where he died during March 2023. He's the author of several books, including The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks, and An Unbroken Agony, Haiti from Revolution to the Kidnapping of a President. On June 24, 2023, a Washington, D.C. memorial was held for Robinson at Shiloh Baptist Church in Northwest D.C. We're honored to bring you the third and final part of that memorial service today. This section of the program begins with Representative Maxine Waters of California, who was Randall's unflinching legislative partner on all foreign policy campaigns, a former member of Trans Africa's board of directors, and his friend. Hazel and the children, I am so honored to be here with you today uh, to pay the greatest tribute that we could possibly play to Randall Robinson. Hazel, I want to thank you for being his partner, for being his mate, and for being his loving wife. It was because of you, your love, and your support that he could be strong in all of his efforts and not to be worried about what anybody else thought, but he had Hazel. Give Hazel a big round of applause. 
Of course, we've heard a lot about Randall today, and we could possibly talk about Randall for weeks, for months, because of all of his contributions. He was a trailblazer in the fight for justice and equality, and his loss is deeply felt not only by his family and friends, but also by the countless people he touched throughout his life. Randall and I actually met uh, doing the fight against apartheid in South Africa. I was in the California State Assembly, and I was working on divestment in South Africa, divesting all of our public employee funds from businesses that were doing business in South Africa. And Randall asked me to come and serve on Trans-Africa's board uh, because of the work that I was doing and, and the way that I was approaching it. And so I was very pleased and honored to be asked by Randall to serve on uh, Trans-Africa's board because at that time I was a young radical and not many people wanted to get too close to me. And now I'm an old radical. <laughs> and so Randall, as Barbara just mentioned, was a statesman and activist, and he also was a radical, because what he did could not be considered as ordinary. He was absolutely someone committed to the proposition that we could change not only our world with domestic policy, but that we could change the world because he was global. He was, he was um, absolutely an internationalist. So from the moment we met, I knew that he was something special, that he was different, that not only was he very smart, he was absolutely committed, and his activism showed us all uh, what was possible. And so I thought, now this is somebody uh, that I certainly am going to follow and work with. So you've heard a lot about South Africa, uh, but I want you to know that it was not just a matter of his activism. Randall understood the legislative process. He understood how Congress worked. He worked with Ron Dellums, as was mentioned, and others. Uh, to ensure that this issue became an issue of the United States Congress. And so all of the work that he was doing in helping the members of Congress and the Black Caucus to get involved, he was also getting legislators around the country involved, getting students involved on campuses, on and on and on. And because of him, we were able not only to learn and appreciate the history of South Africa and what apartheid really was, and we learned a lot about the women in South Africa, led by Winnie Mandela at the time. <laughs> Some people seem to have forgotten about Winnie, but I haven't, because Winnie was a true warrior, and she led the effort even when he was in prison. And so give Winnie Mandela a big round of applause. <laughs> uh, I, 
I can recall when both Randall and I really believed that we were members of the ANC. As a matter of fact, we started telling people that because we, we worked so closely with them and they were the voice of those who were the victims of apartheid. And so we were very, very pleased to be aligned with them. We can't say enough about his leadership and about his work and the fact that, but for him, but for Randall Robinson, we would not have known the depth and the destruction of apartheid and the people whose lives were sacrificed in the struggle for freedom in South Africa. And so we were followers. Yes, Randall Robinson and Mary Berry and uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton tells us the story about being in the embassy uh, here in Washington. At the same time, Randall had us in consulates all over the country. I was in the consulate at the same time. And just as they were being arrested, they were begging us to please leave. It was Thanksgiving Day. And they said, don't you want to be with your families? And we said, the movement is at the point where we can order the food in if we want it. We're not leaving. We're here. And that was the spirit of Randall Robinson. But Randall <clears throat> was involved in so many efforts around the world. And many people don't know about what he did for the Caribbean with the banana issue. I worked closely with Randall to support the Caribbean farmers adversely impacted by the banana trade dispute. The banana trade dispute began in 1996 when the United States challenged the European banana regime in the World Trade Organization, that is the WTO. The banana regime provided access uh, to the European market for bananas that were produced in Europe's former colonies in the Caribbean. This regime ensured that small Caribbean family farmers had access to the European market to export their bananas. It's like uh, reparations. The WTO ruled against the Caribbean family farmers and authorized the United States to impose $191 million in sanctions on a variety of European imports in order to force the European Union to deny access to the Caribbean bananas. So in 1999, I introduced legislation to prohibit the implementation of these sanctions and to protect the Caribbean banana industry. My legislation did not pass, but I traveled uh, to the Caribbean, and we spent a lot of time in Jamaica with the family farmers. Now, I want you to know this is a total income of family farmers. They paid for their children's education. They paid for the uniforms. That was all that they had. But I want you to know there were some in the United States that worked against these family farmers being able uh, to continue their trade. As a matter of fact, you know I'll always tell you who it was, Chiquita Bananas, worked against them being able. They said the bananas weren't good enough. They had spots on them, on and on and on. But they literally, literally stopped that trade. And so the corporate communities of this country and in Europe and other places have taken over that banana trade. 
The same year, Randall Robinson made headlines when he dumped crates filled with bananas onto the steps of the office of the United States Trade Representative in protest against these discriminatory trade policies. When Randall called me and said he was going to dump the bananas, he was going to dump these bananas on the United States um, Trade Representative. Now, I want you to know the Trade Representatives was Mickey Cantor. He was an old friend of mine in Los Angeles. I'd worked with him on campaigns with Alan Cranston. We knew each other very well. And when Mickey Cantor found out that Randall was talking about dumping the bananas, he said to me, you're not going to do that, are you? I said, yes, I am. He said, but Maxine, I've been knowing you for a long time. Why would you do this? I said, Randall asked me to do it. And so we dumped those bananas. A whole truck full of them. <clears throat> I want to tell you a little bit about Haiti. You all know and you've all heard and you've known for some time that he was a fierce advocate for the people of Haiti. In 1991, there was a violent coup d'etat in Haiti which overthrew the government of the country's democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. But three years following the 1991 coup, Haiti was governed by a brutal military dictatorship and a death squad known as FRAP carried out numerous human rights violations, including the 1994 massacre of the residents in Robotau, a neighborhood of Ghana Eves. In 1994, Randall not only gained national attention, but he put his life on the line. And he went on a 27-day hunger strike to protest President Clinton's policy of intercepting Haitian migrants who were fleeing the violence rather than allowing them to be processed for refugee status in the U.S. So we're still fighting these fights. But I want you to know, Marion said that she had to convince uh, the Clinton administration that if they didn't do something, that Randall would die. I swear to you, I thought he was going to die. I was scared. I was so frightened. Thank you. I didn't know about all that pressure that you put on. But I thank you because I think, knowing Randall, he would have died before he would have given up and walked away from that commitment. Lord, have mercy. Mm. Then in 2004, history repeated itself when President Aristide, who had been democratically elected in 2000 to his second non-consecutive term as president of Haiti, in accordance with the Haitian Constitution, he was again ousted in a coup d'etat. On that morning, when he was told to leave, immediately, or he and thousands of other Haitians would be killed, the U.S. plane took him to the Central African Republic and left him there. Now, I want you to know, as they were taking him out, Mildred Aristide was on the phone to Randall Robinson and Maxine Waters, saying they were at the door. They were coming to get them. And as it turns out, it had been worked out by Colin Powell that they would go to the Central African Republic. He had to find a place for them to go. And the French 
were basically in charge of the Central African Republic, even though there was a coup d'etat that had just taken place. And so he arranged for us to go. Now I tell you how he went, how what we did. They took him to the Central African Republic. Randall and I got together and we mouthed the same words at the same time. We're going and get him. We're going to bring him back. And so we started our little plan and I saw Colin Powell in the halls of Congress and I said, okay, Colin, you helped him be sent, you know, to the Central African Republic. I thank you for that because, you know, he had to go somewhere. I said, but Randall and I are going to get him. And he said, what? I said, we're going to get him. He said, okay, if you think you can do it, go ahead. And so we leased a plane, a jet. We got on that jet. We went to the Central African Republic after a lot of maneuvering. We were met by these young men on um, AK-47s, on the back of trucks, et cetera, et cetera, and they took us to the newly leader of the South African Republic because they had just had a coup d'etat to put him in. So we traveled to the Central African Republic and a lot went on, and I can't go into all of the details except to say they were kind of pleased that we were there because they wanted to convince the people that the Americans were with them in the coup d'etat. We said to them, we came to get President Aristide. And they said, we've prepared a place for you to sleep. We have food from the big fish that we get out of the waters, et cetera, et cetera. We said, we can't stay. We didn't come to stay. We came to get President Aristide. And so I said, we don't have time to have dinner or anything. And they looked at us and they said, you do not refuse African hospitality. And I said, okay, we'll have dinner. <laughs> and so uh, they finally released us. There were no lights. Uh, we had to find our way you know, to the plane. We had uh, you know, our pilot and all of that. We brought him back uh, to Jamaica. And he remained in Jamaica until he was able to get back uh, to South Africa. And so, I talk about that because even though we talk about activism and we talked about statesmanship, he was fearless. He was not afraid of anything or anybody. And I was crazy enough to follow him in whatever he was gonna do. And so, despite facing incredible obstacles and danger, Randall remained steadfast in his commitment to justice and refused to give up until we were successful enabling President Aristide to return home uh, to Haiti. Randall Robinson, throughout his career, has been a passionate advocate for justice and e equity for people of color, both in the United States and around the world. His legacy will live on in the countless lives he touched and movements he helped to build. I think, you know, I should just interject this here when I tell you he was not afraid of anything or anybody. He spoke truth to power. You know what he did in Cuba? He said to Fidel Castro, I'm fighting along with others to make sure that we get rid of the embargo because we want you to be able to trade and we want you to be able to have the things that your country needs. But I don't like the fact that here in Cuba, 
there's a difference between black Cubans and non-black Cubans. And he chastised Fidel Castro in his country. Now, I want to tell you uh, that's a lot of nerve and commitment. Randall's leadership and unwavering commitment to justice were an inspiration to all who worked alongside him. We're going to miss him deeply, but we will carry his spirit with us as we continue the fight for justice and equality. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not only worried and wanting to simply shed tears uh, because of the loss of Randall Robinson. But I'm really wanting to shed tears because there are not many more Randall Robinsons among us. I'm worried that as we struggle for justice and equality, those with the spirit of Randall Robinson, with the audacity of Randall Robinson, are no longer active among us. Unfortunately, there are too many who think that we're going to change the world because we know how to deal with the internet. The internet will mislead you, it will misguide you, and it will have you thinking that you're accomplishing something when you're doing nothing. We need street heat. We need activism. We need confrontation. We need to let people know that we mean business. We will never, ever get true freedom until we embrace and adopt the spirit of Randall Robinson. That was Representative Maxine Waters of California speaking at the Washington, D.C. Memorial for Randall Robinson. Up next, Robinson's sisters, the Reverend Jean Robinson Casey, followed by Jewel Robinson. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stay with us. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week. Please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. I've come this afternoon to share how blessed I have been to be the sister of Randall Maurice Robinson. Randall already has preached his eulogy 
His life's work speak for itself. I'm only walking in his wake. Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball, once said, life is not a spectator sport. If you're going to spend your whole life in the grandstand just watching what goes on, in my opinion, you're wasting your life. Randall Robinson's life definitely was not wasted. A great soul he was who aimed high. A monumental human being has left a huge void in our hearts. For decades, Randall has served as a powerful, prodigious light in a world of tragic darkness, in a world of starless nights. He was born to serve, born to empower others. Something within his spiritual being called him to step up. When I was only nine years of age, housing opportunities began to open for African-Americans in our hometown of Richmond, Virginia. Despite housing discrimination continuing to exist in Virginia and across the country, my parents were able to buy a home. With a mortgage looming over our family of seven, my father was literally terrified that his three jobs, teaching, coaching, night center administrator, would not be able to handle the mortgage. The very thought of not being able to provide, the very thought of not being able to protect his family overwhelmed my father. 15-year-old Randall stepped up, assuaged my father's fears, and then literally packed the family up and moved us into our new home all by himself. Because Randall was divinely called, he never ceased to accept difficult assignments after the age of 15. Randall was guided by God to enlighten our lives, called by God to teach us that our lives depend upon the quality of our strivings, upon the quality of aspiration, our ideas, dreams, and hopes for others. He instilled in so many of us the ability to be courageous, for he never forgot his responsibility to speak. He never hesitated to speak truth to power. Always was Randall his own man, a man of great moral carriage with fierce independence, with supreme integrity and high ideals. Never ever was his soul for sale. The meaning of 
the significance of Randall Robinson's life will echo in the distant and mighty corridors of time. His contributions for the betterment of humanity are vast, are enduring. Many of us might not have paid close attention. However, he taught us through his stand for justice that we could stand as well. He touched, enriched, inspired, educated, motivated, and transformed so many lives. Randall Robinson called by God to fight for justice. He led the fight to end apartheid in South Africa. He lobbied for humane policy for Haitian refugees as well as the return of President Jean-Bertrand Aristide to his native land. And he called for reparations for African Americans in this country. Randall fought the good fight. He finished the race. Now if we truly, if we truly wish to pay tribute to Randall, if we really want to honor his legacy, we will commit to pick up the baton of justice and run even further. Of course, we will mourn this huge loss. We will grieve with the huge void in our hearts, yet it can be the catalyst it can be the catalyst toward a renewed sense of meaning that will offer purpose and direction in our lives. This is not a goodbye to my brother Randall. This is a thank you. Thank you for coming into the Robinson family. Thank you for the joy that you brought. Thank you for loving us and receiving our love in return. Thank you for the memories we will cherish forever. Randall Maurice Robinson, you will never be forgotten. We will love you. We will love you forevermore. <clears throat> Let me begin by saying I am not a minister, okay? <laughs> My brother Randall wrote many books. His last one, and the one which reveals the most about his heart, was Makeda. Makeda is about love, the love between a grandmother and her grandson, the love between that grandson and a young woman, the love he felt for the African world those seeking justice, and for us all. In his author's note for Makeda, Randall noted three significant figures presented as fictional characters, but who had, over the years, had an important influence on his writing and sociopolitical thinking. And I quote, In 1964, at the age of 23, I read the Negro in the Making of America by Benjamin Quarles. From cover to cover in two sittings, the book made an indelible impression on me. In 1970, 
Walter J. Leonard, a black assistant dean at Harvard Law School, persuaded the Ford Foundation to fund a small number of postgraduate research fellowships for African Americans aspiring to work and study in Africa. Invited to brief us before our departures, several African countries, mine for Tanzania, was John Henrik Clark, the compelling Pan-Africanist, Black American writer, and Hunter College professor. The meeting that summer marked the beginning of a relationship between Professor Clark and me that would last until his death in 1998. I met Kofi Asario Poku at a conference on Paul Robeson at Lafayette College in 2002. You hear me, Riley? Serving at the time as a visiting professor, he was one of the world's premier authorities on African traditional religions, and he had authored several important books on African religions and culture, end quote. As I thought about Randall's words, I couldn't help thinking that Makeda must also have been influenced by our own grandmother, who every single Saturday throughout our young lives took us for the weekend to give my mother and father time to themselves. And every weekend included picnics, museum trips, my first trip to New York. <laughs> it ended with Sunday school and church, of course, on Sunday. She was an exceptional grandmother. And we were so secure about going to institutions that were ne not frequented by most black people that one day, and I just thought about this as I was listening to everyone, one day, the three of us, Max, Randall, and I, because Jean had not yet been born, the three of us decided while playing in front of my grandmother's, what now would be called townhouse, is, um, we decided, my instigation, there's a museum on Clay Street that we have never been to. I think we should just go and see what that's about. And we were kind of bored with playing in front of the house. Yeah, Max and Randall and I go the three blocks to Clay Street and knock on the door of the museum. And it's answered by ladies in antebellum dress. Didn't mean a thing to us. They took us through the entire museum. We had a wonderful time. And we went back home to grandmother's and said, you know, grandmother, we went to this really interesting place that you never took us. And she said, oh. I said, yes, but I don't understand the name. What is the White House of the Confederacy? <laughs> the three of us had visited. I, and then I began to understand why those docents looked so surprised to see us. It was fun, huh? Lots of antebellum stuff. Prepared you for Gone with the Wind. I've lost my place, of course. 
There's a special story about Randall that I want to share with you. And those of you who are in St. Kitts, you can just close your ears. I like this story. When I entered Goucher College in my freshman year as its first and only African-American student, I'd been awarded a full scholarship with a small supplemental scholarship from Nesfinet. Some of you might remember the National Scholarship Service and Fund for Negro Students. And they helped to place students, black students, in schools that were looking to integrate. At the end of that year, I was informed that school policy required that my scholarship from Goucher would be reduced in my sophomore year. And although I had a summer job, I was working as a Girl Scout camp counselor, worst job I ever had. Um, <clears throat> I knew that my salary from my camp job that summer was not going to make up the shortfall. And of course, I communicated regularly with my family over the summer, and I learned that Randall had a summer job. He was working as the delivery boy for the grocers in our neighborhood. What they did not tell me was that he was saving every penny of his earnings, the sum total of which he gave to me to help pay for school. He was 15 years old. I lost it again. Sorry. So I know that Randall was a legendary freedom fighter and a towering public intellectual and a powerful novelist, to quote Cornel West, for example. But to me, he was also a wonderfully loving brother, as he was husband and father. A sense of history was essential to Randall and to who he was. He felt that this was a key to our health as a people and a nation, and often shared with Hazel his hope for a new generation of scholars in the African world, in the spirit of John Henry Clark, Benjamin Quarles, Carter G. Woodson, and many of us would add Randall Robinson. In light of this, Hazel wishes to share with you that she will be working with family, friends, and advisors to establish in Randall's memory an appropriate mechanism via which to advance the academic study of the African world and its contributors. We hope you will join us. Thank you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come asking that you help us to remember Randall Maurice Robinson and his fine work. Help us remember that freedom does not automatically perpetuate itself. We have to work for it, nurture it, protect and pray for it. Freedom like faith needs our attention and cooperation. 
Lord, be with us now as we leave this, your house of God. Strengthen us, keep us, protect, uplift, direct, and defend us. Thank you, Lord, for the life of my dear brother Randall Robinson. Bless you for giving him to us. Amen. May the peace of God be with you. Go now and continue the fine works of Randall. Catch the baton and move forward. The work is not over. Randall began it for us well. Go forth now in God's love and peace. Amen. was the last part of the Washington, D.C. Memorial for Randall Robinson held June 24th, 2023, that we will be presenting. That last part included Robinson's sisters, the Reverend Jean Robinson Casey, followed by Jewel Robinson, and then Reverend Robinson Casey returned for the benediction. There was another musical interlude and slideshow that we can't really show the slides on radio and to shoehorn everything in we won't be able to play all of that music I'll be seeing you the classic standard but we want to bring you an interview we did with his widow Hazel Ross Robinson in August of 2023 and we'll get to that now In every lovely summer's day. Uh, I think that, you know, those of us who, you know, love Randall Robinson and admire his work so much would love to know about the, the projects that he had going and the different work that he was doing, you know, at the time of his untimely death. Well, even though Randall left the United States in 2001, he never left behind the issues that had inspired him and motivated him all his life. So when he moved to Sinkets, as you know, he continued writing extensively. Uh, both books 
that dealt specifically with foreign policy and history in the case of um, Haiti, as well as books that reflected the importance to him of beauty and love and the importance of Africa in the age of its antiquity. And Makeda was the very last book that he wrote, as you know. In addition to that, his commitment to advance in human rights around the world, and especially in the black world, took the form of his becoming a professor, a law professor at Penn State University. And in that capacity, he conceived of and hosted an outstanding television show on public television that was called World on Trial, in which he identified some of the most pressing human rights issues of the day and put together international juries and international jurists to discuss and deliberate and try our cases pertaining to these human rights uh, issues. So he continued all his life to attempt to make his contribution to the defense of our community and our people. I think so many of us were proud that you chose Washington, D.C. for the memorial. And of course, I mean, you know, so much of his life, your lives were here in D.C. D.C. is a home, I know. But talk about your continued connection to D.C. and, you know, the role that the city played in in his life. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, he moved to Washington, D.C. as a fairly young man after having graduated from Harvard Law School, and he worked in the Congress uh, for a number of years for Congressman Bill Clay and for Congressman Charlie Diggs. But it was in Trans-Af- it was in Washington, D.C., of course, that he established Trans-Africa, and that is where he did um, most of his truly extraordinary work. When he moved to St. Kitts, as I said, he continued his work here. And so both places uh, played a very important role in his life. And let me say that the memorial service was held in Washington, D.C. at Shiloh, at the historic and wonderful Shiloh Baptist Church. And I want to thank Reverend Mensah and his entire staff there because they were so accommodating and they were so kind. And uh, Shiloh has always been very important to, to Randall because they played a key role in his foreign policy work, as um, I'm sure you know. So the memorial service was held in Washington, D.C., but his funeral service was held in St. Kitts. His funeral was held April 6th in St. Kitts in the Caribbean, and then a memorial service was held on June 24th in Washington, D.C. So both places were very dear to his heart. Yes. And in terms of your uh, message that you gave to the congregation, and I think that uh, maybe some of his other family members, his siblings mentioned the education project or the ways that you would like to continue his work. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and maybe how people could could help or assist in that project? Certainly. 
Randall wrote many groundbreaking books. And his very last work was called Makeda. And that is the book that I know captured Randall's heart and soul and mind better than any other. And um, that book spoke about love. The love between a grandmother and her grandson. The love between a young man and a young woman. And most importantly, Randall's love for Africa and people of African descent. And I think anybody who wants to understand Randall's heart should read Makeda. Because in that book, he tries to bring alive for all of us some of the buried history about Africa in the age of its antiquity. And one thing that Randall very much wants, he wants to, well, first of all, he's very grateful to people like Benjamin Quarles and Carter G. Woodson. He thinks that they're pillars on which our society stands. And he wants very much to see a new generation of young black people investigating and researching and writing about Africa in the age of its antiquity. He thinks that that will reap enormous benefits for us as a people. And so in light of that, it is my intention to work with family members, friends, and advisors to establish a mechanism whereby in Randall's name, a scholar who is concerned about and interested in Africa in its antiquity will be assisted to pursue doctoral studies. That is one of the best ways that I think that we can honor Randall. And that's just one of the ways in which I intend to do that. Oh, wonderful. And so is there anything else that you would like to kind of express to the D.C. community, people who will be hearing this and you know, people may be hearing it really all over Pacifica because there's so many people who love and admire Randall Robinson for his work. You know, I'm sure people will be interested to hear the show. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think and I think most people would agree that Randall had a very good heart, a very pure spirit and a brilliant mind and he loved people of African descent and there are many undertakings that he set out to achieve and what was so heartwarming to him was that there were so many people of goodwill, people of conscience in Washington, D.C., across the country and around the world, who saw the world the, the way that he did, who shared his hopes, shared his dreams, shared his heart, and they stood with him and worked with him. And I want to thank the people of Washington, and I want to thank the people of conscience everywhere who stood with Randall and who shared his dreams and who supported him. He could not have done it without them. It was a labor of love for all involved. He was eternally grateful, as am I. So I just want to say thank you on his behalf. And I thank you as his widow for all that everyone did to make his work possible. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your time and 
being so gracious and allowing us to air the memorial and to hear such powerful words and such heartfelt words. And I know for many of us, it is, it's rejuvenating in a way to, to hear the words and the stories and the accounts of people who really fought for freedom and fought for a cause because very often people today, they don't believe that they can be successful. And so just hearing the accounts of, and stories of people who made a difference and most importantly, the, the ways that Randall Robinson made a difference is very encouraging and I think fortifying to people who are still fighting the good fight as best we can. So I want to thank you. I've been speaking with Hazel Ross Robinson. And um, again, I thank you so much for joining, for joining us today. And let me say before I leave that WPFW has always been in the forefront of matters of concern to our community, as well as celebrating all that is best about our community. And I want to thank you so very much for taking this time to remember Randall and to honor Randall. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And Hazel Ross Robinson, widow of the late Randall Robinson, will have the last word on today's show, which began and ended with a focus on Africa and the ongoing struggle to wrest itself from more than 500 years of slavery and colonial exploitation. This is the third and final of three parts, giving voice to those who honored the late human rights activist Randall Robinson at the Washington, D.C. Memorial, held for him on June of this year, 2023. Special thank you again to Hazel Ross Robinson for allowing us to share this special commemoration and the international gathering of people who came together to honor Randall Robinson. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain. And that includes all three parts of this series. And that's on our website, onthegroundshow.org. The music we played during this special show included selections by the Senior Choir at Shiloh Baptist Church here in Washington, D.C. But our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.